Our scripture reading this morning, our scripture study, is going to be out of Matthew chapter 25 and this conversation of the stewardship of life. Matthew 25, verses 14 and following, hear the word of the Lord. Christ says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents here. I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents here. I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow. And gathering where you did, where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I not sowed and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have increased my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast this worthless servant into the outer darkness. In the place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we take, ask that you take now the Scripture and by the work of the Holy Spirit make application to our lives. Come, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's been a book on the bestseller list. I've seen it advertised in the airports. And the title of the book grabbed my attention. It's entitled The Happiness Project. And so I got a copy from the library and read it. It's, it's an interesting read. It's about a woman who's in her midlife, and this is why she says, I wasn't depressed, and I wasn't having a midlife crisis, but I was suffering from a midlife malaise, or lethargy, or boredom. A recurring sense of disconnect and almost a feeling of disbelief. I kept asking, can this really be me? Later in the book, she says, Aristotle declared that happiness to be the summum bonum, or the chief good of the soul. People desire other things such as power, wealth, or losing 10 pounds because they believe 
they will lead to happiness. But their real goal is happiness. Blaise Pascal said, quote, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever ever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. So I designed a scorecard for my own happiness, and she wrote a book about it. And she came up with 12 commandments of happiness. I'm just going to read them. They're very brief. Be Gretchen. That's her name. Number two, let it go. Number three, act the way I want to feel. Do it now. Be polite and be fair. Enjoy the process. Spend out. Eight, identify the problem. Light, nine, lighten up. Do what, you, what ought to be done. No calculation. There is only love. And then she, then she put together this laundry list of what she called secrets of adulthood. And some of them are interesting. Let me just read a few. Always bring a sweater. Soap and water remove most stains. Over-the-counter medicines are very effective. Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. That's not like that. People actually prefer you buy wedding gifts off their registry. <laughs> you can't profoundly change your children's natures by nagging them or signing them up for classes. And then she put together this compilation of lists of people that had mailed them in about, about Seekers for Adult Success. And as I read through the book and looked at all these multiple lists, the thing that struck me is there was no reference whatsoever to God or to eternity. These are list after list after list. And then I started thinking about the wonderful years of yesterday. And I remember being in late elementary, early high school, 1970s. There's a quarterback at the University of Mississippi. And uh, he was a great quarterback. His junior year in the first nationally televised football game on ABC, 1969. His undermanned four-touchdown underdog team played Alabama, and he passed for 480 yards on national TV. Uh, they came within one point of beating Alabama. It's a great game, but that, his name became a household word. Going into his senior year, uh, this man who played for Mississippi and was the toast of the town, the toast of the nation, was the prohibitive favorite to win the Heisman Trophy. That is, it's his. It's his. But halfway in the season, he fell on his arm, and he broke his arm in the, in the Astrodome, and the whole nation mourned, really. Great quarterback, great attitude, married the Mississippi homecoming queen. I mean, it's like a, a storybook, except it was Mississippi, not Mississippi State for some people here. Anyway, his name is Archie Manning. He has a son that's going to play today in a football game in New York. You may have heard of him, Peyton. But, but anyway, I was, a, I was a kid, and I heard this joke, and the joke went like this. There was a young newspaper delivery boy going through the mist of the early morning in Oxford, Mississippi, the home of Mississippi, University of Mississippi, the home of Archie Manning. And as he came across the bridge, there was a man standing on the bridge in an inebriated state, about to plunge to his death. And the little boy said, Mr., please, please don't do this. And he said, why? He says, don't you fear God? And he says, I don't believe in God. He said, well, what about your wife and your children? He says, my wife and my children hate me. And he said, well, what about your job? He says, I just got fired. And then he reached for the final. He says, what about Archie? And the guy said, Archie who? And the little boy said, jump. <laughs> now, yeah, the other crowd thought that joke was funny too. I, it's okay. But I, just, I just remember that joke. Now, listen, the, the reason I tell that joke is, as I'm, 
the first statement was, don't you fear God? I don't think we'll tell that story today. I remember a day when many adults would, would say, we're going on vacation, God willing. Or we'll pass this test, God willing. Based upon the passage in James that says, basically, if God so wills, it will happen. It was, a, it was a, an acknowledgement of the fact that there is a God. But today, we have books like The Eclipse of God, or the, the, the God in the Wasteland that says there's been a death of the concept of God. And early this morning, some of us were praying, and we were praying and singing some hymns, and we sang the, the Gloria Patra, that is a statement of the, for lack of a better word, the Athanasius group that held to biblical truth in the fourth century when there was a group that came against them led by Arius who said that Christ is a created being. The Christ is of the similar substance with God the Father, but not of the same substance. So there is no eternal son. He's, he was created. He was adopted. And, and, and the crowd that held to biblical truth came up with this little song that we sing today that says, Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. There's all, the song says, there's always been God, the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They have always lived together. And in the fullness of time, God became a man and lived, on, lived a life and died on the cross for our sin. And he sent the Holy Spirit after he was resurrected from the dead and ascended. And it, it celebrates the unchanging nature of God. And see, we, when we come to this stewardship of life emphasis, we, what we're saying is there is a God to whom I am accountable. There is a God who is. And I live before him. Even in a culture that diminishes and and turns a blind eye and a deaf ear to the call of God from their heart in nature. So as I look at this little parable, it's a, it's a simple but profound parable. And here's my thesis. God has called us unto himself in merciful love through the cross of Christ. He has gifted us with a plethora of various gifts. He sends us out to improve his assets or to advance his kingdom, and we're to live with joyful expectancy. So God has called us. He's gifted us. He's sent us out to improve his assets, to represent him, to advance the kingdom, and we're to live with expectation regarding hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. So I'm just going to go through this very simple parable. Point number one is we're called to responsible living that can end in incredible, glorious joy. Don't miss this. Verse 21 says this. You've been, a faithful, you've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Verse 21 and 23. Enter into the joy of your master. If we live responsibly as called out people of God, then we will receive a benediction, a proclamation from the living God that says, well done, good and faithful servant. We take what God has given us, we use it as good stewards, responsible stewards. And we, we, we live with that type of joy and expectation that, that there is a distinct possibility of hearing that. It's mind-boggling, mind-boggling. 
Point number two is we are to improve the master's assets or advance his cause, his name, make his name glorious, rejoice in his name. We're to improve his assets as compared to shirking responsibility. Now this man who received the one talent says this, he says, Master, I know you knew you to be a hard man. I was afraid, and so I buried the talent. And the master says, you wicked and slothful servant. And he says, verse 30, cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So I, I look at that and I, I say this. People who claim to be converted to Christ and followers of Christ claim to be Jesus' followers and live unchanged lives are living a biblical lie. Okay, I'll say it again. People who claim to be Christ's followers and who live unchanged are living a biblical lie. And I would say, based upon Scripture, they do not know the Lord. I don't, can't tell who knows the Lord and who doesn't. But by your fruit, Jesus says, you shall know them. This man received a talent. Didn't do anything with it. You see, be very clear. We are saved by faith alone through the work of Christ alone. Period. New paragraph. But the faith that saves us does not stand alone. It produces fruit. It produces a life that says, let me be pleasing unto God. Second Peter talks about adding to your faith goodness, and to your goodness add knowledge, and to your knowledge add uh, perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness add love. And then he says this, Forever, whoever lacks these qualities... Or so if you, if you have these qualities, you are, they're yours and increasing. They will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, one of our greatest prayers should be, Lord, don't let me be ineffective or unproductive ever. Let me go for it every day. And he says this, whoever lacks these qualities is nearsighted, he's blind, He's forgotten that he's been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, here's the application. Therefore, brothers, be all the more eager or diligent to make your calling and your election sure. You say, well, how do I know that God has drawn me to himself in a union of love and friendship? Do you trust Christ? Yes. Do you have a desire to be pleasing to Christ? Yes. Praise the Lord. So, so you stir yourself up. You add to your faith goodness and you add perseverance and knowledge and brotherly kindness and love and perseverance. And see, so people say, yeah, I'm a Christ follower, but, but they just, they, they, there's no change. There's no desire. It's just not there. I, the, the scariest verse in the Bible, people say to me frequently who, who really are not, Christians, but they're into the Christian ethic of love. And they'll say, I love the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going, really? Have you ever read it? I'm thinking that. I'm not quite that blunt. But I read the Sermon on the Mount, and it scares me at times. 
The scariest passage in the Bible is in the Sermon on the Mount, in my opinion. Listen to these words from the lips of Jesus. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He says, on that day, the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name or preach hardly in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness or iniquity. That scares me. Jesus says, the acid test of knowing me is worshiping me obediently. Not preaching, not casting out demons, not doing miracles. It's just living a life of obedience. So, 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 so we are called brothers and sisters. This is a family address to improve the master's assets. And when you get, when you get, when you get that, when I read that, I say, God, let me live with passion. Let me go for it. Let me just, just stretch it. Let, let me live as unto you. There's a little book called Knowing God. It's going to be a 20th century classic by a guy named J.I. Packer. Everyone should read it. It says this on page 76. Just a great statement. He says, um, a God whose presence and scrutiny I could evade would be a small and trivial God. But the true God, the God of the Bible, is great and terrible. By terrible, he means powerful. Okay? Awesome. Just because he is always with me and his eye is always upon me, living becomes an awesome business when you realize that you spend every moment of your life in the sight and company of this all-knowing, everywhere present God. I love that. Living becomes an awesome business. I love to see people do what they do with passion and resolve. Uh, Yo-Yo Ma, the cellist, incredibly gifted man, incredibly gifted. But if you go to YouTube and Google him and watch him perform, just his total commitment to playing beautifully inspires me. You could almost turn the sound off just to watch his passion. Just, and I think of I think of Paul in First Corinthians. Paul is talking about an athletic game called the Isthmian Games, and he says they're they're wonderful games. He says the the, the, the participants labor and work and work and labor and train and train and train to get a, a, a the winner's wreath, and that's wonderful. The winner's wreath. He says, but I take it a whole lot further. I says. I'm like somebody training. I beat my body and I make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I will not be disqualified for the prize. He says, I, I'm not laboring for a wreath that will fade away or a Super Bowl ring that may be lost or a gold medal that we put in a, in a case at my alma mater. I, I, I'm laboring for, and those are wonderful things, I'm laboring for something that will last forever. And so there's, a, there's a, a passion about it. That's what the Scripture says in 1 Corinthians. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. 
two weeks ago, I was fascinated in reading the obituary of a guy named Hiro Onada. Hiro Onada died at age 91 two weeks ago. He, he was the man who was in the Philippine jungle and part of the Japanese intelligence corps in World War II. And two weeks before the bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, he received a command from his, his, his officers, commanding officer, you stay in the jungle, you infiltrate villages, and you gather intelligence about the American forces who have come back to the Philippines. He said, yes, sir. And he never believed that the war had ended. And so for 29 years, after August of 1945, for 29 years, he lived in the jungle. He would slip in and try to gather intelligence and slip out. And so 29 years after that, his commander came in with a loudspeaker and said, the war is over, please come out. And he came out. And he had a uniform that had been patched over numerous times. His sword was polished as he surrendered his sword. And he did that because he thought Hirohito was some type of deity, the sun god or something like that. He believed in imperial Japan. And I thought, how much more should my commitment be to the king of kings and lord of lords? How much more should I say with the apostle Paul in Acts 20 as he spoke to the church at Ephesus I consider my life worth nothing if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me to testify to the gospel of God's grace. And he's called us to do that in our spheres of influence. Just see the stewardship of life. Paul says from his deathbed, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. Man, what a statement. What a statement. So you see, we are called to improve the master's assets. You're gifted. If you're a Christ follower, you're gifted to use your time, your resources, your talents to extend the kingdom, to, to bless those around you, to live with excellence. So as I look at this text, number, th number three is stewardship is a combination of gratitude, loyalty, and expectation. Listen to the, the, the wicked, lazy servant. This is my, maybe a smoke screen, but this is the way he viewed his master. He says, you're a hard man. Says you, you gather you gather crops where you don't even scatter seed. You're a tough dude. You're a bad hombre. And so I was afraid of you. Whereas the, the other guys, there's a sense of, of gratitude and, and, and loyalty and, and expectation. That God is good and He's gloriously good. And He's to be trusted. He's a wonderful master. See, whenever. We pray the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, hallowed be thy name. You know, when God's name is hallowed and exalted and glorified, his people are blessed. When, God, when you say in your marriage, hallowed be your name, in your parenting, hallowed be your name, in your relationships, hallowed be your name, in your job, hallowed be your name, you're blessed. When you get up in the morning, you say, your kingdom come, your will be done in my life right now, today, on earth as it is in heaven. Right now. When you do that, God, God blesses your life. You see, the, the, the wicked, lazy serpent said, you're a hard man. You're a hard man. And I was afraid. The loyal servants were filled with gratitude and joy. You know, do you see the glory of Christ? Do you see the wonder of the Trinitarian nature of God? Do you see the beauty? I mean, the psalmist says, one thing I've asked that I may 
stay in your temple and behold the beauty of the living God. And he said that as he had a dim understanding of Messiah King. How much more should we say, oh God, you're beautiful Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So, so I said last week that we either give financially, we, either, we give begrudgingly, which is a terrible thing. We give dutifully, which is not bad, but really God loves a cheerful, joyful giver that says, God, in the person of Christ, you've done everything for me. Let me worship you. When I was at the Citadel, for four years I lived in 2nd Battalion, and I would walk out every day, and there was a, a plaque on the wall, a quote from a guy named Robert E. Lee, and it said, duty is the sublimest word in the English language. Saw it every day. Come in, go. Come in. Duty. So, you know, think about it. Even in four years, Citadel graduates can memorize that. You know, we can get that. Duty is the sublimest word in the English language. And he went on, the rest of the quote is something like this. He said, we should never do less, and we should always be people who try to do more. Duty. Now, and then later, you know, I studied theology and thought some more, and I don't think duty is the sublimest word in the English language. I think it's a good word. I think joy is a better word. I think delight is a better word. See, I, I don't... There's a quote in the bulletin from a guy named John Frame in the massive systematic theology, this, this, a good systematic theology. But he says this, he says, the Christian ethic is not a Kantian work or, or thought that says you do what you do for duty's sake with no consideration of blessing. In Scripture, what glorifies God also glorifies man. God's best interest is also ours. Scripture calls us to sacrifice our own interest for God's and those of one another, but only in the short run. In the long run, our interests and God's coincide. See, 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 when God's name is hallowed and worshipped and glorified, I get the joy. I get the purpose. I get the peace. I get the sense of fulfillment. But when I understand that I am a steward that's been called unto God, gifted, sent out to improve his assets, and joyfully live with expectation, I'm the winner. You just think about all the passages on reward in the Bible. Let me just read a few. This is Matthew 5, verse 12. Again, Sermon on the Mount. Christ says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Matthew 5, verse 46. And if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Matthew 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 10 and verse 42 says this, And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, they will by no means lose his reward. Revelation. I think this is it. 18. Yeah, verse 11. Says this. Come and receive your reward. So it's, it's, it's throughout Scripture. There's a man named D.A. Carson. People sometimes say, well, who, who, 
can you give me a list of books? Really, what I do is I read people in their field who are just outstanding. D.A. Carson is outst- one of the most outstanding thinkers of our day theologically. He teaches at Trinity Seminary in Chicago. He's a wonderful man. The Gospel Coalition. Anyway, he's been lecturing on the New Testament systematic theology for over 40 years, and he goes to college campuses. He's a chemist by training, was called in the ministry, and loves to go to college campuses and give a lecture and then just have a discussion with people about the reality of God and, and the proof for the resurrection. And Very interesting. But he said this recently, and it really struck me. He said, 20 years ago, I would have never heard this statement. Now when I go to graduate schools or universities, I hear this statement every time I speak, basically. He said, somebody will raise their hand and say, you know, as I've read some of the Bible, what really bothers me is that the Bible is so God-centered. Now some of you, some of you laugh and say, well, of course, well, but think about it. With the eclipse of God, you know, isn't it, isn't it, isn't it, isn't it kind of... Uh, Interesting, the Bible's so God-centered? I said, yeah. And this, he said, then I say to them this, which I think is a great response. He said, the Bible is incredibly God-centered. It starts with God, it ends with God. God is eternal. God is unchanging. God is triune. He says, but you, you should long to be God-centered. Because when you're God-centered and Christ is the center of your life, you get the joy. You get purpose. You get peace. You get an anchor for your soul. You get a sense of well-being. The, the, he quotes some verses. says that, that, that the secret of the Lord are with those who fear Him, who reverence Him. He said, you should plead, God, let me be God-centered. Let me know and learn of you. So, so that, see, again, this parable says that God draws us, embraces us. He gifts us. He sends us out to improve his assets as we live expectantly. And then fourthly, this, this uh, stewardship is not passive. It is active. It is not passive. It is active. Listen to me. If you have come to Christ by faith, you're gifted and you're to improve your master's assets. You're to use your time and your energy and your money to glorify Him. You've been called to something more than yourself. You've been called to something more than yourself and your family. You've been called to something called the kingdom of God that is expansive and eternal and worldwide and never-ending. And it's a glorious thing to give your life to. That's why... In, in 2 Timothy 1, Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, I know the faith that your mama and your grandmama have, and I see the faith in you, and it thrills me. And he says, I, I remind you, Timothy, fan into a flame the gift of God that's been given to you. Fan it into a flame. Blow on it. Use billows. Blow it into a flame. See, because if you don't, you go backwards, basically. And I just say to you, fan the work of God into a flame as you prayerfully cry out to God and read the Bible, as you worship with God's people, as you're involved in the kingdom of God, as you say, God, how can you use me in my neighborhood, my subdivision, my, my marketplace, my, my, my family to advance your name? How can I be involved in worldwide discipleship? I mean, just 
fan into a flame. Don't, don't be passive. Passivity kills. And yet, the, the culture around us, the eclipse of God, the death of God. I was reading recently about China. Let me just read a couple of paragraphs in this report. 16 of the world's 20 most polluted cities are in China. The air in some cities is so bad that at times visibility drops to 30 feet. Traffic slows to a crawl and nearly everyone wears masks over their noses and mouths. In Harbin, a city of 11 million, just stop. My son used to live in China. I've prayed for China. I've, I've never heard of Harbin. Isn't that something? Just a city of 11 million, which is twice the population of our state, plus. Just, just a city. You wonder how many people have heard of Jesus in that city. A city of 11 million government officials recently shut down roads and schools in the airport when the air pollution levels hit 40 times the safe limit set by the World Health Organization. During the air apocalypse in Beijing earlier this year, the density of small lung-penetrating particles reached 993 micrograms per cubic meter, a concentration normally not seen outside of forest fires. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency considers anything above 300 dangerous and maxes out at scale at 500. So this is almost twice the max. The smog was so thick in Beijing, which English-speaking residents now call Greijing, that a factory building burned for three hours before anyone even noticed the flames. One more paragraph. There, there are widespread and severe effects in 2010, air pollution contributed to 1.2 million premature deaths in China, according to a study. Hospitals in Harbin reported a 30% increase in patients with respiratory problems after air pollution spiked in the city. Lung cancer rates in China have climbed 465% over the last three decades, despite there being no significant increase in smoking rates. Scientists say that the pollution in northern cities is so severe that 500 million people's lives will be shortened by an average of almost six years. I read that, I thought, there is a smog in our culture called the anti-God energy. And if you breathe it in, you'll die. You'll die, slow death. If you breathe it in and your number one rule for successful living is be Gretchen or be Mark or be Elaine, or be, you'll die. Jesus said very clearly, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever finds his life and says the number one rule for living is to be me, you die, you lose. But then he said with unmistakable clarity, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You win. God has called us. He's equipped us. He's gifted us. He sent us out to improve his assets as we live in expectation. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, thank you for the, this parable, Lord Christ. Thank you for letting me in this place see men and women who are faithful stewards. For the vast encouragement that comes in seeing their lives. 
And so, Lord, we, we pray that you would teach us what it means to live faithfully. Show us what it means to say we've been called into union with the living God and he has equipped us and he sent us out to improve his assets, to extend his kingdom as we live with joyful anticipation. So use us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.